Hi. Welcome Hi. to a brand new podcast show for the love of books featuring Indian small press authors who bravely navigate the treacherous waters of self-publishing and marketing even during the pandemic. I will be your host, Emma, and we're going to have a blast. This show was par uh, made partly possible by the generosity of Doc Shavant and her support for the arts. It is my pleasure to present to you author Joan A. Chiang. She's the author of 14 books in different genre. Hello, Joan. Hello. Hello. When and why did you start writing? I have been writing forever. I, I, I can't tell you why. <laughs> um, I first wrote, I wrote my first chapter book when I was seven. It was The Adventures of Skippy the Field Mouse, and um, it had tension. It didn't have a lot of good, good character development, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we all know that you're an avid hiker, or a lot of us know that. So how does your hiking fit in with your writing? How do you make the two work, or do you hike and write? Well, um, other than the fact that I have written some books about my hikes and I have written a couple of guidebooks for, <clears throat> for trails, um, those are related to the hiking, but uh, the, the mystery books that I write aren't, aren't really related to the hiking. Okay, so what age category do you write for and how well can you relate to that to each age group? Like, let's say you're Raven Mysteries for kids. How well can you relate? I can't imagine that, you know, relating <laughs> to kids. How do you do that? Um, well, you... the, the Anastasia Raven Mysteries are general audience. Those are, um, it's not that I would object to kids reading them. I just don't think that they would connect with them all that well because they're, they're aimed at um, adults, you know. But um, the, the Dubois Files mysteries are mm -hmm. targeted to elementary age kids. And I, I don't know, I still think I'm a 10-year-old boy. So <laughs> that's how I relate to those, I guess. <laughs> I guess. So what inspires these mysteries, especially for kids? Well, I, that has to begin with what inspired the, the other mysteries, which um, after I wrote the first of the books about my adventures on the trail, I decided that I wanted to actually try to write some fiction um, for money. And I've, I've always read mysteries, I love mysteries. So I decided that the best thing to do would be to write some mysteries. And then I started trying to decide what kinds of characters and setting I could sustain, what I knew enough about and could get interesting enough characters that I wanted to keep writing about them. And what I know is small towns and rural areas. So I, that's what I decided to write about. Um, they are, they're light traditional mysteries. They're Cozy mysteries have come, have sort of evolved into more cute kinds of things. And these are, um, 
they're not heavy drama, but they're, they're light, they're light traditional mysteries. So I had uh, three or four of those out on the market and was doing vendor events as, as you're familiar with, you take all your books and you go set up for a day or a weekend and try to sell books. And people would walk by the table and continually ask me, well, do you have anything for kids? Uh, nope. <laughs> so at some point it occurred to me that in, in the second story of the Anastasia Raven mysteries, I had written in a whole bunch of backstory for the, the character Cora, who is one of Anastasia's good friends. And I thought, oh my gosh, I could take that little bit of backstory that Cora gave in the hollow tree at Dead Mule Swamp and have her tell stories from her childhood, of course, all made up. But so that's exactly what I did. Um, Cora, who is an older lady in the Anastasia Raven books, tells about her friendship with a boy named Jimmy, who is the grandfather of a teenager named Jimmy who comes into the Anastasia Raven books in, in that story. So the younger Jimmy was named for his grandfather and the Cora and the grandfather were best friends when they were kids. So I took Cora and Jimmy and then created three other little kids that are that live in the in a country neighborhood. And so these five kids are the central characters in the Dubois files. So the setting is all the same and um, it's just much earlier. So the kids books are set in the 1950s, which is perfect because the kids can run around and get into adventures and ride their bikes and all kinds of stuff. Wow, that's fascinating. What sets you apart from other authors other than the genres you write in? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, well, my, my hiking, the two books about my North Country Trail hike are um, definitely unique. I, I wrote the first book about, uh, the first book by a hiker of that trail. Since then, there have been a couple of others, but, and, and I've now written the second book, uh, which is the sequel, so that I've, I've covered my entire hike uh, in the books. Um, and my books are different from the other two in that it's not just a straight trail journal of, you know, like a diary, what I did from day to day, mm -hmm. but it takes each, um, each hike. I did the trail in sections. So a hike might have been an afternoon or it might've been two weeks. Okay. But it takes each one of those segments and turns it into a story, it picks out, um, it focuses on what was the most important thing about that particular <clears throat> hike or segment to me. So there really aren't any other books about the North Country Trail like mine, like those two in that sense. Um, the, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
Did you write those after completing the entire trail or did you write them, I mean, as you completed the segments, then you wrote or how did you do that? Yeah, well, <laughs> after, after the first three or four big, <clears throat> big hikes, um, some friends, different friends had gone with me on, on uh, three of those early long hikes. And so I started writing up the stories of things that happened to us uh, that I was going to share with the other hikers from, from those groups. And <clears throat> I showed it to a couple of other people, <clears throat> one of whom was a retired editor for the Grand Rapids Press. Mm -hmm. And these other two people, including, including the one who had been an editor, said, oh, this has to be a book. So I was like, okay. Um, so I just started putting more piece. Every time we, I did a hike, I would add to it. Um, I quickly went from trying to keep a written journal when I was hiking to just doing a tape recording because I couldn't, I couldn't stay awake at night to write a journal. Right. And that, that turned out to be perfect because we could record, I could, I could record as we were walking along, um, whether I was alone or with somebody, it, it made the chapters for the, the hikes that I was with somebody much more interesting because we didn't forget all the silly little jokes and, and fun things that happened um, and have to recreate them later. I, they, we got them on the tape. So um, it really captured a lot more of the emotional aspect, uh, both, you know, both the, the funny and the good and the bad than trying to write it all down might have. Um, I, I, I was thinking originally it would be one book, but then I started the writing, of course, and I realized that it was going to be an 800 page book and nobody was going to buy an 800 page book about a hike. No, no. <laughs> the trail association was having its 25th anniversary. This was in 2005. And they said, well, can you have, um, so I had decided I was going to break it into two. Okay. Can you have the first one done for the 25th anniversary? And I said, well, I think so. So I spent the, that year just working my tail off to get that first book out, um, succeeded. So the first half of the hike came out in 2005. And then I finished hiking the trail in 2010. Um, always with the plans to write the sequel to finish the story of the hike of the hike but just didn't get it done didn't get it done didn't get it done but I had the tapes you know I had the tapes yeah. I had I had maps I had pictures um plus actual memory and so I finally finally got my act together and got the second half written so now there's two books awesome which did you prefer writing more of these trail hikes or your mysteries? They're so different. I, I really enjoyed all of them. I enjoyed the research for the trail books. Uh, sure, I'm telling a lot of just what happened to us, but I've one of the things I love to do along the trail is discover history and geology and okay. um, plants and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I wanted to get that right 
in the book because it's it's a nonfiction book. But then um, it's a lot of fun to make up stories too for the for the mysteries. So it sure is. And you also published during the pandemic. What was it like compared to publishing in normal times? No difference. No difference. Just no. Or I, marketing, you didn't have any problems, you know, launching the book, marketing it, you know. Well, sure, we all had trouble marketing books. Um, but it was the next book in the in the children's series. Okay. And I I had the idea. I have a, a group of people who like the series and are were, you know, they're always waiting for the next one. Um in there's, there are five books in the kids series now, and in book time, they are June, July, August, September, and then of course the fifth one was going to be October, which and it was it's a it's a Halloween story more or less, okay. and so I wanted to get it done in October so it could come out for Halloween, and I managed to do that, but you know, none of us is selling a lot of books this last year. What can I tell you? Right. I know. I know from my <laughs> own experience. What do you see as the biggest challenge in the publishing process and how do you handle that challenge? Distribution. Um, if you, there are a couple of print-on-demand companies that also serve as distributors and if you get your if you get your act together and get the book formatted the way they want to they will help you um well they there are two i can think of that are accepted by bookstores that that um bookstores will order from those print-on-demand distributors where they won't from Amazon. Amazon is easy. Amazon's an easy way to get started with print on demand. Um, and I just haven't gotten my act together to get the format uh, tweaked to get my books with at least one of these other print on demand companies so that, I, so that it's easier to get the books in bookstores. Okay. What have you learned about yourself from your writing? <laughs> uh, That's a tough one. I have trouble with that one myself <laughs> answering that question. Uh, I am not very focused. <laughs> I am not there. When I, you're when determined. I, you're determined, right? And well, you finish your project. When I, when I settle on something and get busy, then I'm sort of manic until it's done. But I, I'm all over the map. You know, I do nonfiction and I do faith-based books and I do mysteries for general audience and I do mysteries for kids. And then I go hiking and then I go look at plants and, you know, I, I just want to do everything. Okay, so what's the worst and the best advice you have ever received in regards to writing and publishing? Well, the best is probably um, what 
when that editor said, this has to be a book. I mean, that was real validation from someone who knew something about writing. I had been trying to, I had been submitting articles to magazines for at least 10 years before that. And I have a nice notebook full of rejection letters and which they say is, you know, you gotta, you gotta get them, but I never got anything accepted for, for payment. Um, I, I do have some articles in some some anthologies that were, um, they're, they're fairly good quality, but they're, they, I didn't get any money for them, okay? So having this man tell me that, that my initial chapters of North Country Cash were good was a real validation. And um, that really kept me going to complete book one um, and then it won an award. So that was kind of, uh, kind of the kickoff, you know, I mean, I wasn't going to stop writing then. So that was probably the best. Um, well, <laughs> I don't know if it was the worst, the most hurtful was from a man who is a well-known author now um, that I met a long time ago when I was in my 20s. And um, he more or less told me that you know, you either have it or you don't. And if you've got something to say, you'll get it published and otherwise you won't. So, and then I spent, you know, 15, 10, 15 years trying to get something published with nothing. So um, that was, he didn't need to say that. Right, right, I agree. Tell us about the most interesting thing that has happened to you during an in-person author event something funny, interesting, or bizarre. Authors talk about, you know, bizarre stuff happening to them oh. in person. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Um, this, this wasn't while I was actually giving the program, but it was at a, an event. It was a becoming an outdoors woman event, which is um, a big program of, uh, well, it actually was started by a lady from Wisconsin. Um, it's often now run by, um, uh, in conjunction with DNR, um, Department of Natural Resources events. So this was a Becoming an Outdoors Woman conference in the Upper Peninsula. And it was in like 2003 and I had just read a book the year before called, um, <laughs> you put me on the spot here. Um, ordinary, called Ordinary Women, okay? And it was, it was the story of a, a group of women led by, put together by Sue Carter of Michigan 
State, formerly, she's retired now, of, of Michigan State University, who put together a team of women who uh, skied to the North Pole. And if I had known, and they, they reached it on my birthday in 2001, okay? <laughs> if I had known that was going on, I probably, it would have changed my whole life, but I probably would have applied because you didn't have to be a great skier because it's a totally different kind of skiing. You're on real wide skis and the, the point is just to keep you moving. You have to, uh, the, the ice is rough. It's not like, it's not like downhill skiing. Okay. It's, not even, it's not even like cross country skiing. What you really needed to, to be was tough and crazy, okay? Um, but I didn't know anything about it. But I had ahead of time, but I'd re just read this book and we're having a, you know, a mingling, get acquainted time before, before I was going to speak. Cause I'm the, I'm the main speaker for that night, right. Telling my story about my hike. And there's a lady standing. She wasn't talking to me, but she was standing near me. Um, and I heard her talking to some other people and she's saying, well, it's, you, it's just like Friday without the Y. And I'm thinking F-R-I-D-A, Frida. Frida, Frida in the upper peninsula and she's talking about skiing and snow. And I grabbed her and I said, are you Frida that went to the North Pole? <laughs> she said, yes, I am. <laughs> wow. So that was the beginning of a great friendship. Um, Sounds she, like it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. She's one of the few women who's been to both the North Pole and the South Pole. She Whoa. loves snow. She loves snow. And she's she's a crazy good skier, which I'm not, but we're both just outdoor people. That's and, very cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was pretty bizarre. That's bizarre. <laughs> that is bizarre. Where do you see the future of indie publishing? Oh, it's great. It's just going to get better. Um, the, the best thing about indie publishing is that there are now literally hundreds of books on topics that we never would have seen before because there wasn't a big enough market for them with all kinds of interesting historical content and memoirs. Um, I'm sure there's fiction, but there, there's some important stuff that's now getting into print, even if people are only printing five copies for their family, okay? Mm -hmm. um, because it's doable, it's, it's affordable. The, the bad thing about indie publishing is the same thing. Anybody can do it. So there's a, a fair amount of poorly written material and uh, people aren't getting edited, or if they are getting edited, their editors aren't very good. Um, and so people are wary of buying independent um, books by independent authors. Um, so we have to work to overcome that by growing our own personal fan club, which is not, there are very few authors that find that a favorite thing to do because um, most of us are introverts. And 
marketing is, I, I know a couple people that like marketing, but I'm not one of them and I don't know very many. So that's a, that's a real hurdle, uh, but it's a trial for even traditionally published authors now because companies are doing less and less marketing for their authors. So, yeah. Have you ever wanted to stop writing? Like when you became angry, frustrated, whatever, with the entire process, with, with all the struggles, challenges. I don't know. Have you ever wanted to stop writing? Um, yes. I, back when I was trying to, when I was submitting articles to magazines and getting rejected over and over and over, I basically did stop. Um, and then, and I went to grad school and started hiking and started writing about the hikes. And then I, I, my interest came back. That's good. Would you stop writing if you won the lottery? Oh, sure. I'd go hiking. <laughs> or you could go skiing to that North Pole. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think I'd do that alone. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I do it at my age now, but, um, I, I would definitely go hiking. <laughs> would you do it all over again, the writing career? If you were born again and deciding, oh, what am I going to do with my life? No, I think it took me until I was 70 years old, but I think I maybe have finally figured out what I wanted to do with my life, but I'm not going back to school a third time, okay? Right. <laughs> but I think, I think that what I really want to do is forensic botany. Forensic botany. Yep. That's amazing. Forensic botany. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Well, forensic botany. If I if I tell you what it is, you will you will know. You just probably, probably heard it called that. It is using uh, plant material to help uh, solve crimes. Okay. Crimes. Okay. Whether, you know, there might be uh, plant material on tires, there might be plant material on okay. some of the shoes, okay. um, and that could be anything from seeds, pollen, pieces of broken okay. plants, um, all of that kind of stuff. I, mm -hmm. I had the privilege, and I do mean privilege, to be selected to be on a, uh, a team that worked on a forensic botany project for a big crime that we had in our county a number of years ago. And it's, that's one of the 10 top experiences of my entire life. It you was, should write uh, that up. You should pardon? write that out. You should write it up. That's well, I, I, I wrote a newspaper column about it. Um, okay. It was one weekend long. I mean, it wouldn't, it's not. Oh, good. okay. But, um, I, that might, that might be enough to, it might have enough variety of, of uh, what pursuits in it to hold me. Sounds like it. How, how do you think we're going to be remembered as authorpreneurs, indie authors, or as just people who simply wanted to write? Or you can make up your own answer. It doesn't have to A, B, if B, A, B, or C. You can make up your own answer. How oh, do you think oh. be remembered, you know, let's say 100 years from now? Me or authors in general? Authors, like, let's say indie authors. 
in the As authors. opposed to traditionally, if we're still doing that separation, or is it ever going to, are we ever going to close that gap, I guess? Yeah, no, we're going to be seen as trailblazers. Traditional publishing is going to be gone. Gone completely. At some point, I think. I, I think mean, so too. well, I suppose you should never say something's going to be gone completely because, um, you know, there's still people playing vinyl records and watching yeah. TV with tubes and, yeah. um, but uh, the the gatekeeper syndrome where the the ten the big ten or whatever mm -hmm. number it was traditional publishers held the held authors uh, by the neck and only allowed a certain few through that golden gateway every year is, is our, it's already gone. And it's not, that's not coming back. No, I agree. That will not come back. What are the major takeaways from your books? From any one of them, if you want to say overall or pick any one of them, your mysteries or your trail books, what would you like people to take away from them? Well, from the trail, from the trail books, what I want people to get is that the North Country Trail is an accessible trail um, for um, most people to hike. It's not, you know, it's not like hiking in the Alps. It's, uh, it's a very interesting trail. There's a great diversity of experiences and it's a lot of fun, you know? Um, so that's, that's what I want people to see about those books. The mysteries are, well, they're, they're just fun books, you know? I, but they're, they're clean. Um, the, the books for kids are, similar in tone to the boxcar children books. So they're not, uh, the, the stories have, uh, you know, like not blatant morals, but the kids, the kids make choices between good and bad. And um, they are expected to treat adults with respect. I mean, it's in, it's set in the 1950s and, and that works. Um, it's a diverse group of kids. There are, uh, black kids and kids of European descent. Um, one of them, his family has just come over from Hungary. So uh, two of the kids' families have been here. I, I haven't said how long, but you know, they're, they're American kids. And then George and Ruby are two little African-American kids, brother and sister. Um, and Laszlo's family just came from Hungary. So it's a nice diverse group of little kids. There are uh, there have been opportunities already to have conflict between uh, the, the little black kids and, and some of the townspeople. Um, I mean, these are, these are books for children, so we're not getting into really heavy stuff, but, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it realistic. And um, one of the books deals with the plight of migrant workers because the this fictional county that I put them in is it's it's loosely based on a whole bunch of places in West Michigan. Okay, so it's fruit okay. fruit growing country, and there are migrant workers here mm -hmm. to to do the harvesting and stuff. And um, 
one of the books, The Big Boss, deals quite strongly with uh, the treatment of migrant workers in that time, time period. So, uh, you know, I hope, I hope that, uh, that kids are not only reading a fun story, but they're learning some history as well. Okay. Uh, would you like to read for us? Sure. Let me take a sip of something to drink here. Oops, I'm going to have to turn on a light. Okay, and you will be reading from your North Country. I'm reading from Quest. North Country Quest, Quest. from which North is Country. the second, which is the second book. Um, okay. in, in the series. So it's the completion of my hike. Okay. And the, the part that I'm reading is from a hike in Wisconsin. And it's the last day of that particular hike. And on that, on that hike, I was hiking alone. So it's, it's just me. Okay. Okay. My goal for the night, my next to last night out on this trip is the Jerseth Bluff campsite high above the Bois Brule River. This is a 14 mile day in the full pack, but I'm so continually stimulated by the variety of experiences on this hike that I never become exhausted. It's the sort of location I love, a flat spot with a great view across a valley, yet with lots of trees. I filter water and cook my dinner of St. Patrick's stew with coffee cake. As evening falls, the moon, one day away from being full, rises to flood the woods with blue light. If I thought the first quarter was bright, this is astonishing. In truth, I later learned that the moon is only two days, away, two days past perigee, the closest point on its orbit from Earth. It's not my imagination, it really does appear brighter. The shadows of adjacent tree trunks on the tall white poplars create chiaroscuro stripes fading away from me to a vanishing point. The night is also exceptionally clear and the stars are so bright they seem to perch, glittering in the branches of balsam trees, reminding me of twinkling Christmas tree lights. Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? We put lights on an indoor evergreen to remind us of the stars and trees outside. But how many have lain on a hillside soaking in the beauty I find at Jerseth Bluff? One of my favorite songs just through my consciousness, always true, but somehow quintessentially so tonight. Except I'm not asking for the moon to be extinguished this time. Bed is too small for my tiredness. Give me a hill topped with trees. Tuck a cloud up under my chin. Lord, blow the moon out, please. Rock me to sleep in a cradle of dreams. Sing me a lullaby of leaves. Tuck a cloud up under my chin. Lord, blow the moon out, please. Nice. I have very, more. Very nice. Yep, there's there's a little more. If I, I should have time yet. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yes. The following day, I stopped for lunch on the rim of a bowl ringed with russet gold, brown and yellow aspen blazing in the sunshine. Scattered jack pine dot the hollow. The spicy scent of sweet fern rises to flavor my meal. 
small flocks of juncos and chickadees entertain, playing hide and seek. At Winnebuju campsite, I'm cheered by finding hard wood for my fire instead of stinky damp aspen. On my final day, I rest briefly at Morris Pond, another lovely place where one red tree on the far bank punctuates the gold. Bill has warned me that there is a clear-cut area I'll need to pass through almost at the end of my hike. In the middle of the logged section at the top of a hill is a memorial bench for Atlee Oswald, a volunteer trail builder who has recently passed away. I sit to savor the last moments of my outing. I was expecting a raw logged scar. Instead, the opening is beginning to grow back and I find it a high, lonely, beautiful kind of place. There are long views which are as satisfying as the embracing comfort of the forest. I record in my journal, well, a shower will feel good, but I'll miss the sun and the breeze and the quiet. I feel a strange mixture of wanting to be finished and yet not wanting it to end. Suddenly, there are tears in my eyes. Okay, before the parting shots, where can people find you this summer in person? Just major places where you're going to be. Okay, um, I will be for sure at the Lakeshore Arts Festival in Muskegon. Uh, that's the last weekend in June. Um, if they have it, I'm accepted at the Blueberry Festival in Paradise, Michigan in August. It's not. Oh, they're not having that. I okay. found out. I will be there. I hadn't got the word that was not happening. Um, not happening. Okay. Um, I'll be, uh, the next one up is uh, at Turkeyville near Marshall. Okay. Uh, on May 15th. Mm -hmm. And then I have uh, some more local events. Um, in Ludington that I'm going to. I've, I've held off signing up for some until I got some other dates um, settled. So those, those are the ones I know right now. Okay. How about parting shots? Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your insights with us. So interesting. Yep. I, I hope to see you at one of the events in Muskegon, definitely. I'm, I'm sure I will. We, we seem to, uh, well, yeah. we are in kind of some of the same circles. So yeah, yeah I'll see we you. are. Yeah. So my last parting shots are buy indie, read indie, write indie. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Thank you.